Well, good morning. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude. Little tiny book right there before Revelation. That's where we're going to be uh, in just a moment. Thank you, Paxton, Tiffany, Aaron, uh, and Wesley playing guitar with us as well this morning, man. Glad to have you here. We have this thing at Double Oak where if your name's not Wes, you can't play guitar. It's just a rule we have. Uh, everybody <laughs> that plays electric is Wes, uh, it seems. And so it's, not, it's like, it doesn't even matter if you're good. It's just like, is your name Wes? And then you can play guitar. Um, Hey, Jude's where we're going to be uh, in a moment, uh, but I want to take some time to, to engage with you and just have a, a moment of corporate prayer uh, together as we've been doing weekly uh, before we enter into time with God's word. Uh, this week, just, just feel compelled um, to, to share with you that, that we've spent nine weeks uh, talking through our foundation. Um, truly over the course of the nine weeks. And I know a number of us have been here for all nine weeks, perhaps some of us just for a few. Uh, but I do think we've worked really, really hard to reiterate um, our vision of who, who we're called to be, who we believe God has called us to be as a church. And that's the, the, that we're called to be this people in this community, this local body who believes that the gospel is everything where there's this culture that is being established, this place, this thing that is happening within us, where we seek to communicate that above all things, our lives are shaped by the fact that we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That good news, that proclamation that changes us. And we talk about three very specific ways uh, and so some of you are tired of hearing these things, but, but this is the goal. The point is for us to these not only be things that are kind of catchphrasy or things that, that we would say and hear and recognize and be like, oh, that's kind of like our thing or who we are, but instead that they would be deeply embedded in our hearts. And it's these three things that in, in reference to the gospel that we would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That from the moment of salvation onward, we didn't believe for one moment, but instead we continue to walk in belief, to live in gospel belief, that every day you and I are believing together in the sufficiency of what God has done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The second thing is that we would live in the gospel, and that means really recognize and be a part of the fact that that we're in community together, that we have union with God through Christ by the Spirit, and now we're actually connected to one another in such a way that when I look at you, I don't just see a person that is kind of like me or somebody I might have an affinity for or somebody that lives in the same neighborhood as me or we like the same stuff, but instead we are bonded together. We're united in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're truly connected. And so our goal is to live in that way in community with one another as a family of faith. And the third thing, that we would live out the gospel, that we would be people who demonstrate with our very lives what Jesus has done for us. Out of sheerly the recognition, the experience of God's goodness in Christ, that we would serve our neighbors, that we would live these quiet, beautiful lives that show and demonstrate to the world that God has changed us in Jesus and that we'd be givers, that God is fashioning us and changing us and shaping us into people who give. So this is what we're praying for this morning together, that, that the gospel would be everything to us, and that, that would be reflected in us. And when I say us, I don't mean institutionally, organizationally, I mean you and me, that we'd believe in the gospel together, that we'd live in the reality of the gospel, and that we would live it out. Sound good? 
Let's take a moment to, to pray together. Heavenly Father, God, you've given us the opportunity to be together, to worship you. And Father, we come to this place, admittedly, from our own individual places, um, in our individual cars. But we come to this place, Father, and we recognize that this building houses your church. So Father, together, corporately, in the same way that we engage in one heart as we worship. Father, would you help us be drawn into the vision that, God, the gospel is everything. Father, that we'd be people who believe in, with our very lives, the good news, the proclamation of what your son Jesus has done. Father, we'd be people that live in that reality that embrace and experience all that you are as we exist in community together. And Father, would you let us be an attractive community of faith that shows and demonstrates the world, demonstrates to the world, Father, your deep love, so that the the grace and the experience of mercy and life that we have in Jesus, Father, that that might be experienced by others, by our neighbors, by people in this community. God, these are supernatural things that we ask of you. Would you do them in us for your sake and for your glory? And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we are going to be in the book of Jude. Uh, if your print is anything similar to mine, it's probably two pages uh, right before Revelation. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Jude. Uh, and so I think one of the main questions might be, uh, why Jude and why now? Uh, here's the thing. I've grown up in a world where um, I would probably agree with a lot of the writers, theologians, folks that write commentaries and all these big books on books of Scripture uh, and echo the fact that I've I've never really been taught Jude. I've never really walked through it scripturally. Why would we do that? Why do we move from a series on foundation uh, into these three weeks that lead up to Easter on this little maybe even a obscure-type book in the New Testament. Well, here's why. This is Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, and this is what it says. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Second Timothy 3, 16. This is the word of the Lord together, which we say, thanks be to God. Um, here's the thing. We want to walk through in these next three weeks as we lead up to Easter This book, this tiny book, and see all the beautiful, incredible, amazing things that God has to teach us about who we are as the church and how he's designed us to help protect the doctrine of the gospel. That's what this book is about in many ways. So we're going to spend three weeks, in the, over the course of three weeks, we're going to look at the book of Jude um, in a series titled Jude, Contending for the Gospel. Contending for the Gospel. We're going to look specifically today at verses 1 through 4 in Jude. 1 through 4. Um, and here's the thing. We're going to see a need a need for the churches to, to whom Jude was writing, but also a need for the church for all time 
to preserve and protect and defend and truly contend, and we're going to talk about what that word means, contend for the faith that we share, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jude, verses 1 through 4, let's read this together. This is Jude 1 through 4, and it says this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. All right, four of the most dreaded words in the English language. We need to talk. Anybody ever hear this? Right? Uh, I think a number of us in our younger years, this was in reference to defining or essentially undefining a relationship, maybe. Um, But as you grow in life, I think that, that when you have relationships that matter with people, relationships where you're really connected, relationships where you exhibit love, and there's this mutual reciprocity of care and giving and value, real relationships where there's real connection, sometimes you'll have to have a hard conversation. Like a really hard conversation. Husbands, you've had this with your wife. Wives, you've had this with your husband. We've had it as friends with one another. You have it with with coworkers. Um, You have it with children. A number of people you care about, all different kinds of relationships, there comes points where there's just this real sense of urgency and this deep need to talk about something. Now, when you and I hear those words, we need to talk, I think a number of us kind of like clench up, right? We just kind of, or we flinch, we're thrown off at that, and we go to this place where we think we're about to hear the worst. Anybody go to that place? I don't ever like really hear we need to talk and get super pumped. Um, (laughs) Look, I think we go to this place where we think, man, something really challenging is about to happen, and that's a scary thing. But as I've grown in relationships, one of the most beautiful things comes from we need to talk. Because you address hard things, and those hard things feel challenging, and they're quite often scary in the moment. But when I look at a lot of those conversations, I see that they were actually preserving. They were actually protecting. It was actually a means of caring for that relationship that had value. That relationship that had meaning. So we need to talk means there's going to be some stuff that's coming and it's heavy. But that it's for our good. That's what's happening when Jude writes this letter to this church or these churches. When we look at the address, we're, we're not certain about exactly who this was written to, although we have a good idea of their background in many ways. But Jude is, in essence, saying to the church, hey, 
I wanted to write to you and just share with you the excitement of living in the reality of the gospel. That's what he says. He says, I want to write to you about our common salvation. I want to celebrate and write about the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. But there's this urgent need. There's this deep need. We need to talk about the fact that something is happening in the church, and specifically this this church or these churches, that has to be addressed. And what we learn in Jude is that this kind of thing can happen anywhere. And in many ways, it does happen almost everywhere. We just don't always see it. I want to start this morning by really working through these first four verses because I think what we're going to see in these first four verses is not just that theme, but a very particular grounding in the gospel that we seek to preach and proclaim every week. A grounding in identity for believers. Where we see this morning that on the surface it might just look like Jude is this, this short collection of 20-ish verses in which he says, hey, you need to be careful. There's some bad stuff happening in the church. Except that there's actually a lot more than that. And the response to anything that's urgent or necessary or that really matters is actually grounded in true gospel identity. That the gospel is the foundation of the church for all things. Um, Let's look at verse 1. And I want to walk through this. Men had the opportunity to read a number of different writers, um, commentators, theologians, from David to Moo to Balkan to Steiner. Um, There's some good, good stuff here this morning we'll experience. I think it'll enrich our understanding of this scripture. So first, Jude. Who is he? Who is Jude? Anybody super familiar with Jude? Yeah, me neither. Right Now a little bit more. Uh, but look, there's two things uh, that we learn about Jude from this verse. One, he is described as a servant of Jesus Christ and then also the brother of James. Uh, we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 13 now that will help us understand what that means to be uh, the brother of James and also whose other brother uh, he, he, he shares uh, life with. This is Matthew 13, 53 through 58. This is Jesus in Nazareth. This is the famous passage of, of, of a prophet not being welcome in his hometown. Matthew 13, 53 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a passage where we get an understanding of who Jude is. And you might say, hey, I don't know if your eyes are bad, Michael, but there's no Jude in this. The reality is this name is pronounced in both Greek and Hebrew, Judas. So this book, Jude, is written of Judas. And it's not just James that's his brother, we find out. But it's Jesus that is actually his brother. So this is a weird thing. 
He opens this book and he says, I'm the servant of Jesus Christ and I'm the brother of James. This Matthew 13 passage is echoed in Mark chapter 6 and there's a lot of historical data to help us understand and recognize that, okay, he really was Jesus' brother. But why would he write to believers to encourage them and say, I'm a servant of Jesus, I'm a brother of James. I feel like if I'm Jesus' brother, I'm probably going to name drop that. It feels like this might be the way to go. It's strange. Why on earth does he do this? There's a really, really important reason. And this is it. Jude is not seeking to put emphasis on the earthly relationship that he has with Jesus. He's seeking to put emphasis on the spiritual relationship he has with Jesus. Now think about this. There's deep humility bound up in what he's doing. And he's saying, look... I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and I'm a brother of James. He's not ashamed of being Jesus' brother. Instead, what's happening is he's saying, I'm James' brother, but I'm Jesus' servant just like you. You and I share this. So, in essence, Jude is really trying to communicate that though he is in a bloodline way connected to Jesus, it's, it's the spiritual effect of being covered in his blood that unites believers. That's this incredible thing that he's saying and that he's doing in this moment. Now, James would have likely been known to those he's writing to, and that would help his hearers recognize his authority in writing. He uses this other phrase. He says, servant of Jesus this is really, really powerful because the word here uh, is doulos, and it means slave. So the word says servant, but it means slave. So I think you and I probably in a number of ways we hear that word, and it's really challenging to us. It feels strange. It might feel not right. It might feel super antiquated or, hey, that's an old word, and I think we could have done better there. But But Jude uses this word slave for a very particular reason. You look throughout the Old Testament and you see all of these people that were called to special service. They were called by God to do these incredible things. They were called slaves of God. So we're talking about Abraham and Moses. People like this, people that God used in these dramatic, incredible ways... The Joshua's, the David's, the prophets, they were called slaves of God. So he's putting himself in that category. He's saying that this is who he is to help connect these people who were steeped in the Old Testament, these people in these churches that he's writing to. They know the Old Testament. We're going to see more about that in a moment. But he's telling them this to say, God's called me to a place where I can share with you this wisdom because I'm truly his slave. And Paul would do this in Romans, and Peter would do this in First and Second Peter, and James would do this in the book of James, and it's yet another connection to where Jude would say, I'm with you as we contend for the gospel together. I'm connected to James, who you know, and I fight alongside you in this. He's a slave to the Lord. And this is where humility and authority meet. He says, I have this calling that the Lord has given me, and I want to share with you what he longs for you to know. Who's he writing to? No particular place is mentioned. Most of the time when we read a greeting in Scripture, when we look at those first few verses, we're going to see that it's written to to the saints at Ephesus, right? 
or at Philippi, or all of these places that are designated, these groups of churches, or a specific church. We don't see that in the book of Jude. But it's really important to note that he's likely writing to a group of Messianic Jews, or Jews who have believed in Jesus. People who have been, are of Jewish heritage and Jewish faith, who have now trusted in Christ. We know that because when we look next week at the stories in verses 5 through 16, we're going to see all these Old Testament stories that give us an indication of who he's writing to. And that Old Testament imagery is only going to bolster this idea of slave, right? So that they hear that and they say, oh, this is, this, is, this is Abraham language. This is Moses language. And even for some, hey, this is Paul language or Peter or James language to help them understand what God is trying to teach them. Now, look into the latter part of verse 2, or actually the beginning of verse, uh, latter part of verse 1. It says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. All right, something incredible is happening here. And Jude is describing the people that he's writing to. We're going to look at this and we're going to see, I really believe, identity and foundation in the gospel. So that just as we talked about a few weeks ago, you look throughout all these different passages of Scripture, and quite often you and I are caught up in the, what do I do? What do I do? What's the actionable step? What's the thing I need to do? Where do I go? But everywhere we look in Scripture... The gospel precedes it. And we get to understand that by any, of char- any charge or any challenge or any action that's placed before us, God has already gone before us in his grace and his mercy. Literally, Jesus has paid it all every time before there's any call to action for us. We just get to step into that obedience. So look at the gospel that's presented here. He describes these believers as being called. Now, when you and I think of being called, I think more often than not, we, we view it as an invitation, that we've been invited to take part in something, right? So there's, there's a sense in which we might even look at Jesus calling the disciples, Right? Asking these men to put down their nets, to leave all that they know, and come and follow him. The reality is that's a lot more than an invitation. And what Jude is really pointing to and signaling out is that for believers, they're not just invited into something where it's like, hey, if you want to do this Jesus thing, you can just come do it. Like we're doing it. Do you want to do it? You want to jump in? There's an open invitation for you. It's much, much more than that. Here's what calling really, really means. It's the reality that those who are brought to faith through their belief in the gospel is from the Lord himself. It's a special calling. Your salvation is a special calling. This is something God has done. This calling is not just, I decided to jump in. No, it's, it's really, in essence, that God has drawn you unto himself. That's what it is. You've been called and adopted into the life of faith. That calling language is, is really probably most resonant in Romans 8.28. That God works everything to the good, right? Of who? Those who are called according to his purpose. This doesn't just mean invited into the purpose. And we can see that that word doesn't work there, right? 
It's not an invitation into purpose. No, it's a, it's a drawing towards. God draws us. He pulls us. He calls us in to life in him. How does that happen? Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who? Who are in Christ Jesus. So this is what calling is. It's being caught up into the life of faith by God himself. So calling here is not just simply an invitation, but it's a recognition of what God has done. And so Jude, from the very beginning, is saying, this is what God has done. He's the one who has called you. He's the one who has called you. You didn't just all of a sudden wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to try the Jesus thing now. That's the one. I did all this other stuff. I lived for me. I've, I've awakened myself to it. No. It's God who has called us to himself. Uh, a, helpful, a helpful word comes from a pastor uh, whose name is Matt Diaz. And he says this, Remind your people that they are called, loved, and kept by grace, not because of their effort, but because of his grace. So from the very beginning of this letter... What the believers get, what you and I get is a recognition. I didn't call myself to this. It's God who has called me. My life, my very life has started in God. Then he says, beloved in the Father. The reason for our calling is not what we offer or what we do. But it flows from God's love for us. It's God's love for us. Look to the words of 1 John. How can we love? He first loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. His son not sparing is how we got into this calling. It's what God has done in Jesus. And we got to see that that comes in the deepest love that we could ever imagine. Jude's going to address some really heavy stuff with the church and talk to them about how people are looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> and with the wrong people. Really. And, and ultimately what he's saying is you got to understand. God has, God has drawn you in to the faith. And it's because of his great love for you. The gospel is love. Here's the third thing. He says, kept for Jesus Christ. And this is really, really powerful. Because this is what he's saying. God's grace keeps us to the end. This really dives into the reality of believing in the gospel. Not that I trusted in Christ once and now it's my job. So, so I, I, I was saved or I got saved and now it's my job to stay saved. Anybody ever think about that? You are a liar if you don't raise your hand on this one. All right? You are. Because the enemy is telling you this all the time. Your culture, your tradition, even good traditions are telling you this. I've got to do these things in order for God to love me. We sing words like this about passing through death and entering rest. 
What preserves me as I pass through death? Is it my good works? Is it the things that I've done? By no means. It is only God's grace that sustains us to the end. And we're called to believe that day in and day out. That the work of Jesus Christ, that everything he's done is effectual. And it's, 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 it has efficacy. It is complete in every way that it's finished. And so I can have courage to have the we need to talk conversation. I can have courage to walk into this thing with a deep sense of urgency because I'm not called to keep myself. And you aren't either. You're kept for Jesus Christ by Christ himself. This is foundational stuff that Jude is sharing. All of these things point to the gospel. That our calling, our receiving of love, our security, they're all founded in the gospel and what Jesus has done. So here's the thing. you got to see this. Before Jude tells his hearers, the church, these people, these believers, what they're called to do. Before he tells them what to do, what does he tell them? This is who you are. This is who you are. This is your identity. You are called. You are beloved. And you are kept. And none of these things depend on you. Instead, it is God and what he has done for you. Then look into verse 2. And he says this. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, each of these things are needed for this church at this time. You're going to look and see in the latter portion of this work, that what we're going to cover in week three, you're going to see that there are people that are believers that are struggling with doubt. Anybody doubt at all? These believers need to be offered mercy. So he prays for, he asks God for mercy for these believers. He also asks for peace. Why does he ask for peace? Because there's division. There's strife. There's disunity. These people are at a place, these believers in these churches are at a place where there's now kind of not just dissension, but really this great confusion where they're wondering, who do I trust? What voices can I trust? What experiences can I trust? In the midst of all this confusion, Jude prays that there would be peace and then finally, this, love. He prays that love will be multiplied so that they will recognize and see the foundation, the gospel, and who they really are. Their identity in Christ is that which flows from love. And it's that love that's going to lead to a holy life. It's that love that's going to lead to a holy life. Look into verse 3. Uh, and here, here's where the hard part comes. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So in this moment, Jude, I think, is, is, is beautiful because he's confessing, I didn't really want to do this. I can identify with this. I didn't really want to say this. Right? 
I remember a couple years ago, I was at our Mount Laurel campus. I had to do a Sodom and Gomorrah sermon. Do you want to talk about waking up and not wanting to do something? Really challenging, right? But you know what? It was necessary. It was necessary. Why? Why is it necessary to, to talk through that, to read that, to share in that? Because all scriptures God breathed. All of it's for our reproof, for training in righteousness. Paul would say in Acts that the, the goal is to teach the whole counsel of God. To share everything. So Jude does this incredible thing and he says, look, I wanted to write to you about what we share in Christ. And I really just wanted to talk about the fun stuff. But I got to tell you, you need to know this. You need to know this. That there are these people that are a part of the church. And it's going to be up to you to truly defend the gospel and the doctrine of what the scriptures really say. Look at what he says. This is incredible. He says, it's necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. And then he says, that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the language here is not, I'm writing to the elders of the church. I'm writing to the leaders of the church. I'm writing to those who, who are, in, are, in, are in leadership or have an office or have this special designation. I'm writing to you to contend for the faith. That's not what he says. What does he say? You, like y'all, like everybody. This is really what he's saying. I'm writing to y'all to contend for the faith. It's up to the church to contend for the faith. The gospel says that we have life in Jesus and that we're new creations and the way we live matters. But, but that challenge, that charge to contend for the faith, to truly help people understand the reality of the gospel, not that it's Jesus plus we do some other stuff too to make sure we're really good. Not that it's Jesus plus some traditions. Not that it's Jesus plus good behavior that we kind of are trying to stack up. It's not Jesus plus a good reputation. No, it's Jesus. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's our job collectively to contend for that faith. Here's what contend means in this moment. The way Jude writes that the word he uses is one that describes struggling with immense effort to protect. And the language kind of has these military and athletic undertones. It's this battle-type language. It's this holding on to that which is true. It's this passion to keep and to protect and to preserve that which is true. The gospel that's been delivered to the saints, that's been handed down once and for all by the apostles. So when, when John would write and say, say that, that these words that we proclaim to you, we write to you about Jesus and we say that, that we've heard him. Remember this in 1 John? That we've heard him. That which we have heard, that which we have seen So the apostles have seen Jesus, that which we have beheld, we've looked upon, meaning we saw up close, and that which we have touched. These apostles 
are giving the truth of who Jesus is to these believers. And Judah's saying, we have to trust these scriptures and we have to fight to protect and preserve that which is true. And we'll do it for all kinds of stuff in our life. We really will. Because I've seen a lot of people contending on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I'm getting old, so I'm out of touch. And whatever the other ones are, right? Um, we contend for stuff all the time. To the point where we'll like really fight with people that we love. Or at, least, or at least we think we love them, maybe. But we, but we have some we-need-to-talk moments without really saying it. We just, we, it's more like we need to yell at each other. Um, but truly, we contend for all kinds of things. We're advocates for, for our, our family and people we love. We contend for a number of things politically or in relationship to the way the world works that we have deep convictions or passions about. Jude says, above all, this is what has to be contended for. Because things are being not just challenged or twisted, but perverted and changed into something that it was not meant to be. Faith, that which we believe, the teaching of Jesus, the gospel. We've got to protect what the scriptures teach about who Jesus is. And here's why. Look into verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is why we're called to contend for the gospel. Here's what the condemnation portion really helps us understand. It's that God is judge and that those who are against the Lord will not be victorious. So the recognition of that condemnation helps us see that God will preserve those to the end who are his and that those who, who, whose, whose God is in their stomach, those people who love themselves and have not loved the Lord, those people who have not trusted in Christ. And I'm not just talking about, oh, I never, I'm not sure if they prayed a prayer. I'm talking about, we're talking about people who've lived lives unfaithfully and reflect that they have no relationship with Jesus. We're talking about people who will experience condemnation. And we're given the end of the story at the beginning. These people who are ungodly will not be victorious because this is what they're doing. They're perverting grace into freedom to sin and, and quite frankly, um, specifically sexually. There are all of these people in these churches who have crept in and kind of in an unnoticed way have started to live in front of the church these licentious lives. These lives that effectually say, hey, we have Jesus now, so we can just do whatever we want. We have Jesus now, so we can just, we can, we don't have to, we don't have to be faithful. We can just do anything that we want to. The, the reason we get to do this is because we have Jesus, and so now we get to do these things. And to you and me, that might sound crazy. It might sound nuts to think we don't have that here. And by God's grace, to a large degree, I don't believe that we do to that end. But you and I can get there. The church could go to this place. How is that possible? If we don't guard what we look at? If we don't guard the things that we see? 
this is, this is really, really hard. We don't have to, you don't have to really go in search of like deep pornography to experience pornography in this day and age. I mean, I, I'm watching like NCAA basketball games and seeing commercials that are risque. Really hard stuff. Anything you flip through, and when, when we do this thing, when you and I do this thing, and we scroll, and we scroll, and we scroll, we're going to be presented with images that aren't that bad. It's, 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 it's not fully depraved, right? And it's, and it's loosely connected. The enemy is working, even now, even in the midst of us, to pervert grace to the extent that we think, well, I'm, what I'm doing is not really that bad. What I'm looking at is not, is not really that hurtful. Will we show it to our wives? Will we show it to our husbands? Will we show it to our friends? Will we show it to our neighbors? If it doesn't pass that test, it probably doesn't really reflect the gospel and grace. Hard stuff, but true stuff that we're called to. We're called to live godly lives and to not live in such a way that God's grace is perverted into sensuality. Because here's the core of that. Here's where it comes from. Not just, okay, there's some people in the church that, that are exploring sensuality and, and, the, and these deep things, and, and that's really bad. So at the heart, it's, they're, they're really, really bad. Well, there's a core identity place that this would come from. Truly. The phrase that Jude uses is that they deny our only master and Lord. They deny our master and Lord. And there's these two things that are happening here uh, in this verse. So there's this guy, Peter H. David, who's a Jude scholar. And this is what he says. He says, in that world, Caesar was the supreme Lord. To confess that Jesus was one's only Lord was to make a statement of independence, not only from Caesar, but a statement of submission to Jesus. So to call Jesus our one and only Lord is to say, this is the thing that, that I am beholden to, that I'm committed to, that I love, that I've given my life to, that I surrender to, I submit to above all things. It is this. This is the only place of life. And that says everything else I don't have allegiance to. But for those in this camp, for those who do not view Jesus as master and Lord, Anything goes. Because they're not serving him, they're serving themselves. Jude, from the very start, gives us this deep foundation, this understanding that we're called to believe in the gospel. That everything that we get to take part in is a result of what God has done. It's him who's called us. It's him who loves us. It's him who keeps us. And we get this recognition that we're the ones that are called to contend for the faith. You and me. I want to share some application points with you today, and here's what they are. Really in line with our values. Here's the first one. How do we contend for the faith? How do we contend for the gospel? How do I do that? Like in your life, like this week, like for you and me, for us, how do we actually do this practically? 
three things. The first one, and you're going to like maybe shoulder shrug and giggle, but it really is this, is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Truly. Remember that you're called and you're beloved and you're kept. This is not your work. It's what God has done on your behalf. Contending for the faith means you have to know the faith. How can I know the faith? How can I understand the deep truths of what God has done that have been handed to us through the apostles if I'm not in the scriptures? If I'm not keeping the gospel before me? Some of us are doing this. You're reading the scriptures every day. And maybe even every chance you get every day. And that's fantastic. Others of us are not. It's not a priority. We don't sit down and carve out time to spend with God. Do you know what happens you start to think, ah, you know, I can, this is okay. I can spend my energy here. This isn't bad. No, we gotta, we got to really keep the gospel before ourselves so that we truly believe the faith that is once delivered to us. Here's the second thing. We live in the gospel as people of God. How do we contend for the faith? One, you've got to recognize that your call to this is the church. That the calling is for you to do this. All right, here's the, the thing. We're going to wrap up here in just a minute, but I want to say this to you like, very vulnerably and very clearly. I grew up in a world where I thought it was unsafe and perhaps even dangerous to question those in leadership. To question people in the church. I want to be, this is not like a, um, this is not a philosophy style. This is not just, hey, we just want to be vulnerable and open because that's like a cool thing in this moment. This is a scriptural thing. It's your job to contend for the faith. And you know what that means? That means you have the freedom and to ask questions about what we're teaching. You need to challenge what we're teaching. If it's not in the scriptures, we need to be held accountable for that. Anytime any of you have sat down for membership with me, one of the things that we really talk about is the expectation you ought to expect of your pastors and your elders, those who lead and shepherd you, it's our job to give you God's word and not our opinion. So you contend for the faith by in this church, in this place, taking upon yourselves the boldness to challenge and ask and say, I don't know, is that right? Is that what the scriptures really say? You need to have the freedom to do that because you're not being rude and you're not being mean and you're not demeaning us You're seeking to protect the gospel. You're seeking to contend for the gospel, to contend for the faith. That is a good thing. Here's the third thing. we got to live out the gospel in such a way that we don't pervert the grace of God. To live in such a way where we live holy lives that reflect Jesus. And look, we're called to examine our lives and turn away from sin. Are there areas, hard questions, hard stuff, we need to talk. Is there any offensive way in us? Is there anything I'm doing where I'm I'm giving myself license to sin in this way? We need to repent of that. We need to repent of that so that people can see and experience God's grace in a deep way. Short little book, 25 verses, profound beauty to help us understand that the enemy is when to use people, and the enemy will try to come into the church and pervert and twist the gospel, this gospel in which we believe, this gospel in which we live, this gospel which we live out, and try to pervert it and change it and distort it and destroy it. 
And ultimately, it is God who keeps, but he's called us to take part in fighting for and defending the faith that he's delivered to us. So let's do that together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, you give us life in yourself, through your Son, by your Spirit. And Father, it is so easy for us to drift. It is so easy for us to miss things that are, God, just truly not noticeable to us. We're busy, and there's things that are going on in our lives. And even this morning, we walk in, and we grab our coffee, and we're, we're trying to get to our seat, but we're saying, hey, and we're loving old folks. Um, and Father, even in those moments, we need to acknowledge and, and be aware, Lord, that, that there could be things that are slipping in that are, are not, not just not helpful, Father, but they're lies. God, would you protect and preserve your church? And would you help us see that we have the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing in the life of our people by contending for this faith. God, you've given it and you keep us. And help us to live in the reality of the gospel. Father, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.